Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, after Weinstein, what happens next? As other male execs are outed and more actors and presenters share their stories, will this scandal be the one that finally changes the culture of the entertainment industry? James Harding leaves BBC News for Pastures New. We look at how he coped in arguably the toughest job in journalism. Ofcom lays down the law on Radio 1. And the Daily Mail gets tough with its graduates. Oh, and in the media quiz, we deduce which returning formats will return no more. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining us today is the special correspondent for BuzzFeed UK, it's James Ball. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome back. You've got a book out, How Bullshit Conquered the World. I do indeed, and um, bullshit seems to be still doing quite well in the six months since I've written it, so it hasn't turned the corner yet. Oh, I see. I thought you were actually referring to the book just as bullshit, like people are like, yeah, I was in Les Mis. I, was in <laughs> I might try that, actually, yeah. yeah. So uh, give us a brief elevator pitch of the book. Go on, sell it to us. It's what's gone wrong and why it's all actually the mainstream media's fault, as well as fake news and Donald Trump's. I'm there. I'm reading it. Uh, And joining James this week, making her media podcast debut, is reporter Nastaran Tavakoli-Far. Nastaran, hello. Hi. Hi. Your background is BBC Radio. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. So I was at World Service for quite a long time. I've Um, heard of it. And then I worked for BBC Business for a bit. These days I'm mostly working on a podcast. It's called The Gender Knot. So it's trying to figure out new gender roles. Ah, well, you may well bring an interesting perspective on our first story, Naz. I'm glad you're here. Because we're starting this week with the story that has all of the entertainment industry talking, and that, of course, is the fall of Harvey Weinstein. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, that's a Hollywood problem, and there's plenty of American podcasts covering that. Yes, but, of course, actors and presenters on both sides of the Atlantic have been sharing their stories of abuse at the hand of various male execs. And the fallout has continued with Amazon Studios' Roy Price resigning this week amid accusations of unwanted advances to a producer. And according to the Daily Mail, the actor Anna Friel as well. Ness, how much of this isn't a surprise? You mean in terms of Hollywood or in terms of the world of work? Well, <laughs> but both? You, you take it how you would like. I think most women, a lot of it doesn't seem that off. Not even so much the abuse stuff, but the harassment stuff. You know, I think pretty much a lot of women will think, hmm, yeah, believable. The difficulty is calling it out, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, the point is that people are often, I don't want to say targeted because it might not be that deliberate, but often these powerful male executives will go after 
women who feel they can't report it at the expense of their careers. I think that's that's what it is. And also sort of just the culture of um, women speaking out, how that gets taken, like it's a very fine line. You've got to walk as a woman. And you see that like even in the highest echelons of power. Like, I mean, Hillary Clinton being the best example with her book recently where she called people out and that did not go down well. So I think you go from that to day-to-day in the office. But as I said, James, these are high-profile women who have actually come forward with allegations and accusations, and yet they seemed, it appeared, reluctant to do that until the ball was rolling. Why do you think that would be? Well, I think the issue is, even for quite powerful people in Hollywood, if they speak out of turn, they often suddenly find a lot of the work and a lot of the commission drying up. When these things happen to them quite often, they weren't in powerful positions. And then when you haven't said anything for a year or for two years, you know there's going to be a backlash later. You know, why didn't you speak out sooner? This is on you. We've got sort of culturally we're amazing at blaming women for bad things that men do. And we have seen that in women that have spoken out now. Oh, well, it's okay for you to say, but if you'd done it 30 years ago or 20 years ago, or 10 years ago. And of course, if they had done it 10 years ago, we'd have never heard of them. And there's also the issue of perhaps the media suppressing these stories and rumours around Harvey Weinstein. Do you think there's any truth in that? I think part of the issue with these stories is they're very difficult to write. You know, I've written up lawsuits from the US where people have alleged behaviour against quite senior Hollywood and entertainment figures and other figures even when you've got a lawsuit to do it on, they're incredibly difficult stories and people come after you. When you start seeing that lots of people settle these suits, including people whose names haven't come up in the last few weeks, you've got to be pretty damn sure if you go for this stuff. I think some credit to the New York Times and to others for helping break the story, and then actually to social media for once not being a total villain, in that... For a few days, it felt like everyone was going to paint this as one villainous man. And while Weinstein might be quite an extreme case, I think what's happened in the last few days with the Me Too campaign and things like that is, this is more a kind of toxic culture across certainly film, but maybe across the media that is being ignored. And that's something, isn't it, Naz, that probably is new in the last couple of years. It feels like the kind of ball on everyday sexism and all of the related things to that has now rolled to such an extent that actually people don't say, as you were suggesting, this is just a Hollywood problem. Mm-hmm. People do say this is a problem about powerful men mm-hmm. and women in the workplace across the board. And so in the UK media, what do you think the resonance of this is? Something I was going to say earlier was that um, what is interesting to me is the New Yorker story was written by Ronan Farrow. So he had tried to do the story at NBC and they had made all these excuses for why they couldn't. With someone like that, like, you know, he had a real drive for like over a year to get the story out there. But the reason I bring him up is because he's written about how much the studios and the system around the film industry kind of really suppress the media and suppress journalists. So like you get the sense that unless like you really had an in on these stories or like a personal reason to bring them out as just a journalist, it was just impossible to get near it. You and know? the finance as well. Right. I mean, being Woody Allen and Mia Farrow's son means he has a cushion, right? right? I mean, if you're just a journalist pushing and pushing and pushing for years and no one wants to take the story, that's a bit harder as a freelancer, isn't it? I mean, it's often the tale really for anyone. You know, the people who break these big stories... They have to have some factor that pushes them and drives them to it because, you know, for all that, if you do manage to break it through, if you do get there, you get plaudits. You know, you write much less often, you are financially struggling if you don't already have a profile. This stuff's really hard to do. 
you know, we often undercredit it and it then turns into, well, why didn't someone do it earlier? Why didn't people do this? It's, mm. you know, this stuff is hard when you're going up against kind of powerful interests. And- well, except in the case of NBC, they themselves do have the, the support to do this. He took the story to them. They said no. And so now as to answer my question, maybe actually one of the repercussions for the UK media industry is if you are running a major news operation in this country and someone comes to you and says this well-known executive is alleged to have done this, maybe it now becomes a point where people feel they actually have to say, let's investigate this, otherwise they're going to end up later taking the flag for it. Yeah, I mean, I think something that's happened the past kind of five or six years is with the whole budget issue across media, like investigative departments have largely been cut. Apart from like you get a few big stories like this, so maybe that will be some sort of a push to make sure that budgets aren't cut in people who's working on these stories. Let's be honest, though, part of the issue as well for not just NBC, but lots of other companies is the news is a small division of a huge entertainment company and you have competing interests and the the head of the news department might be absolutely on side and wanting to tell the story but they won't stay the head of the news department if they try and do it Well, and this in is... some cases. And it's because it's not the news that makes the money, it's the talent. And that often ties into the firm or to people that, you know, the top of the company know. And so there are quite big conflicts of interest for the media when it reports on themselves just because of who owns it. And this could be the case in terms of Roy Price, couldn't it? I mean, actually, there is a separate allegation that he may have actually personally molested someone. But in terms of the main sort of thrust of the argument against him, it was that effectively as a line manager, someone came to him and said, I've been raped by Harvey Weinstein and he didn't do anything about it. You, I mean, if you think back to Savile and all the radio executives at the BBC who knew what Jimmy Savile was up to, maybe not the extent of it, but knew, had a rough idea and did nothing, you could argue that the general attitude of, that's not my problem, mate, that's changed. And that's what you've got to hope works for American media. And I think certainly still for places here, I don't think we can pretend this is a US problem. Just as Savile hopefully has sharpened things up at the BBC, certainly on those fronts, but you'd hope more widely on abuse and on assault, maybe this will start to change a very antiquated Hollywood system that hands huge amounts of power to almost universally straight, white, middle-aged men. And Naz, on the Gender Knot, your podcast that you mentioned, you talk about the experiences of women and gender roles, particularly in the media. So what do you think these scandals are going to have on people like you who work in the media? It's been quite exciting. Um, I don't know if that's the right word to say exciting, but the past two weeks have been interesting because, you know, you you are seeing a lot of people speak out and a lot of women speak out in a way that I think has not been okay up to now. So, like, just being quite forceful and being quite frank about it. So I kind of think, yeah, the culture of people having to hear women and women journalists in ways that they're not used to is going to have to change just because I think a lot of female journalists are just sick of having to, like, be the people who speak truth to justice but do it in a way that doesn't offend people too much because that's quite a hard line to... (laughs) It's quite a hard line to try and walk. But I just feel like the last two weeks, there's just been a lot of like, screw that. I'm just going to say it like it is. And on the subject of Ronan Farrow, who, as you say, broke this story, he's just landed a Channel 4 show. James, presumably this is just fortuitous timing because telly tends to investigate talent for quite a long time before they sign them up. Given how long ago this must have been agreed, they must be thrilled. I mean, (laughs) maybe this is just Channel 4's brilliant PR drive for their new show, you know. Uh, Can you just hang off breaking that story? I am, of course, joking. Um... But, I mean, it's sort of been there. They've really wanted to crack the late night format, as has ITV in the UK. 
and every time they've tried something, it hasn't really landed. With, with the exception of the last leg. That actually really has worked. But, you know, the 10 o'clock show, for all actually, it was quite good. Sort of certainly by the second season, it didn't really attract an audience. ITV's latest effort hasn't really won me over, certainly. And so actually bringing an American to try it and kind of doing the, well, the outsider sees more of the game kind of thing, looking at the UK going, hey, what are you guys doing? I could see it working, and he's a pretty experienced TV host, he's well-connected. The tricky thing for them is going to be if America sort of wants to do an obvious promotion or something for him there, will they be able to retain the talent? Mm. In a sense then, as it's kind of uh, last week tonight with John Oliver, but on its head, isn't it? So you have a British production team working on a show with an American for a British audience. Yeah, I think the whole outsider's perspective is going to be cool. Okay, let's talk about the BBC. Big news there this week is that James Harding, head of BBC News, is to leave the corporation. Naz, where's he going? So he's off to start his own media company, and it's because he wants to be able to do stories in a way that you can't do at the BBC currently. So that means what, do we think? I think because the BBC has a quite hard role in trying to be everything to everyone, it can make it editorially quite hard to be hard-hitting sometimes in certain ways. So it's funny because James Harding has said something quite vague, but I know what he means as someone who's worked at the BBC. I mean, to really dumb it down, he basically means, doesn't he, stories that have a bit of an opinion, that have a bit of bite? Yes, probably something with a bit of bite, a bit of an angle. And sometimes, you know, the BBC can't speculate. It can't sort of do what something like Politico or Axios might do, which you could quite easily see um, Harding jumping into. I mean, this wouldn't be the first time that James Harding's name's been connected to upcoming editorial chairs. Anytime any editor's seat's vacant, someone mentions James Harding Mm. for it. So there's rumours about the FT. But there are also rumours he's lined up investors already for whatever his new thing is. Well, of course, both might be true, I suppose, with a man in that kind of position. I mean, he probably could quite easily line up investors and try it for six months and see what happens. I would have thought if you've been the sort of director of news and current affairs for the BBC and you step into a new job, why do it on a slightly smaller scale as much as it would be nice to be back in a newspaper, I'm sure. He's edited The Times, he's had that very senior BBC role, he's quite well regarded. Why not actually try something new and also possibly, if he's a founder, get rich off it? But also, is it, the answer to that now is might be so that he can do a bit of reporting, so he can do a bit of writing, so he can actually get hands-on and edit stuff? Yeah, yeah. The role he had at the BBC is the kind of role which it's a bit more managerial. I can imagine someone like him wanting to get back into like the news, into reporting. Also because he, um, he had a show towards the end on the World Service called On Background, I think, which was mostly him and correspondents delving into news stories a bit. So I can actually see the appeal of someone like him wanting to go back to doing something small where he's like very hands-on board, actually like going through the stories rather than kind of looking at big vision for a department or something. Oh yeah, no, that's why I was saying I could see the appeal of a startup for him more than I could see the appeal of, say, the FT. Build your own thing, do it your way, have it small enough that you can have your finger in sort of every pie. I could see that working for him. He's been vague, as you say now, about what it is that he's going to start up. But if you were saying where there's a gap in the market, where would that be, actually? Because there are so many news websites for every possible flavour of news at the moment. And let's presume this is a digital offering. What's left to start up in? I mean, the rumour is a sort of 
UK founded version of Politico. Now that might be a nonsense rumour, that might be chatter, but you could sort of see it working except for the fact that Politico itself is doing it. You've got a good morning email culture here. You've got quite a lot of that stuff anyway. And you've also had, you know, the likes of Ian Dale and Guido Fawkes and all the rest of it trying all that stuff out for the last 10 years and there are alternatives out there for people, aren't there? As well as our mainstream press actually doing some of the in-depth cell reporting Politico does anyway. I might wonder about something like a UK Vox, but hopefully better, or a UK version of Quartz, kind of places that look at policy or look at sort of what's actually going on, but then try and actually make it interesting and short and internet native. That could be something that might have a bit of a gap here, I would have thought. You know, what we used to call explanatory journalism. And if... uh James Harding is listening. James Ball is about to go freelance. So, uh, uh, yep, available for commission <laughs> from December the 1st. Very strong affiliation with your uh, rumoured idea. I wonder if he wants to do something with emerging technology in there. Because like you say, there isn't an existing obvious gap. The emerging technology and journalism thing is still quite hot and exciting. And I imagine there are a lot of companies who might want someone like him on board to test things out. If he wants to invest a million pounds into podcasting, uh, Matt Hill and I can help him out with an empire there. In other news at Auntie, Ofcom have finally published their terms of service for the BBC, which includes decrees on providing more British programming, plus more news in peak time on Radio 1 and Radio 2. James, is this necessary? Do, you know, It used to be the BBC Trust that decreed this kind of thing, now Ofcom are doing it. But actually, most of the targets they've set, it seems to me, the BBC achieve anyway. A lot of it also feels really outdated. Any kind of younger audience now is completely used to and loves getting international content. And that's what makes you competitive. And the BBC has got increasingly good at making content internationally as well. You know, BBC America, its partnerships pull more money in. And if that then sort of gets hit by Britishness quotas, it's not serving the BBC or the audience. The sort of era of this kind of paternalistic force-feeding, ex-much news programming in this hour, no, not at 9pm, before 8.30pm, and seven minutes of it, and three of it must cover this... It's nonsense because it's not how many of us listen to radio now. We get our favourite shows as podcasts, we dip in and out. And so I wonder if they're sort of like an ignorant version of King Canute a bit. They're trying to sort of keep the media as it was in about 1990. Well, you say ignorant, but they have consulted, haven't they, Naz? And they've decided, you know, let's try and put some targets in place that only the BBC can do. You know, Capital Radio is not going to have an investigation about HIV, which they're going to run at six o'clock. But Radio One, we can force to do that. What's weird is because of like how we consume media, you can go to what you need. So it's not like I can only listen to Radio 1 and I must get a diet of news and sport and entertainment and whatever all on this one channel. It's like if you want news, you go to a channel for news. If you want something else, you go to... So it, it kind of assumes that we're in an old model where you only have like a limited amount of sources to get your media. So I don't know, it's a bit bizarre to me. Having worked in BBC News yourself, actually, mm-hmm. wouldn't, isn't it refreshing when you are making a version of your story for a mainstream audience who aren't expecting it. Like, if you only just make stuff for the self-selecting audience of people who like that content, in a way, no one ever discovers anything. No, that's true. But at the same time, now that people can listen to whatever they want, there is the danger of trying to make something for a different audience. And if they're just not interested, they're just going to switch off. I mean, I have to say, with Radio 2, James, that certainly seems to be the case. So it's one thing to say, let's make news for young people, because at least that is a niche that isn't necessarily being covered apart from by Vice or whatever. But with Radio 2... I mean, literally no one listening to Radio 2 wants more news, do they? So why are they doing it? 
did you just ask about young people news to a BuzzFeed employee <laughs> and say Vice is the only person making it? That is the most offensive question. I mean, in a BBC style, there's a niche in the market. But with, with news for people in their 50s who would otherwise be listening to LBC, I, I just don't see Radio 2 need to do that. I mean, audiences in their 50s and 60s are not underserved for news. Exactly. They get, they get That's the my most point. of it of anyone. That's the less offensive version of my point. The issue is, essentially, young audiences will engage with news when it's shaped for them, when it's about things that they're interested in, and when they want it. And if people are listening to Radio 1, they're usually doing it to relax. It's good that there's a bit of a bulletin. It's good there's some stuff there. You know, Newsbeat is a decent operation. I'm sure they can sharpen up more. You know, things like how do you deal with politicians lying when you're only doing a 15-second clip? That kind of stuff they still have to engage in. But do they have to do much more of it? And would they keep their audience that's tricky because the BBC is not doing well at reaching young people already. And so if you then make it even harder for them to do so, it's not necessarily going to help anything. We can hear from the delightful tone of your voice that perhaps you weren't born within the confines of the M25. What about this business about doing more programming in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland? Is that the right thing for Ofcom to say the BBC should do? Yes, actually, it kind of is. And I think initially this started quite gimmicky when the BBC did it. What was happening was people were from London were being flown to Northern Ireland or being flown up to Scotland and were making the programmes. But, you know, Media City in Salford has really worked. You know, why can't we have that in Leeds, in Newcastle, you know, in Edinburgh, Glasgow, up in Belfast? It should be a national broadcaster. And that does mean more more of it outside of here. And there is still so much of it in London. You're nodding that. Going back to the thing about having more programmes made within the UK, the way to do that is to have more people based outside of London. Because I think the, the problem with places like London is that you do also get a bit of a sort of internationally view to a lot of things you make so i think yeah having more offices based outside of london for just the media in general you're going to get a more british sort of sense of what's going on okay we'll have more of our niche on-demand news program for young kids after this this episode of the media podcast was once again recorded at run vt in the heart of Soho. Our friends at RunVT have 15 offline and two online suites, as well as a spectacular bass-like grading theatre to go alongside this ear dubbing suite and voiceover booth, which I'm in now, in it. But wait, I hear you cry, what can I watch that RunVT have been working on recently? Well, how about Bad Habits Holy Orders, a four-part factual series airing on Channel 5 on Thursday nights, Yes, please. Edit your next show at RunVT. Go to runvt.tv now. Time for some news in brief now. James and Naz are still with me. Uh, James Murdoch retains the chairmanship of Sky. Thoughts? He only just did it and... The objections of the shareholders were pretty good. He got 51.16% of the vote, I think, which is really low. And it's because they said he had a conflict of interest. It wasn't that they were saying he's a bad chair. 21st Century Fox is trying to buy us. You're involved with that. You're involved with this. That's a conflict of interest. It's one that will resolve itself one way or another. So I guess it's a blip. And referring back to what you were saying about locating BBC programming budgets out of London, there's now a campaign in Leeds to bring Channel 4 to that city, Naz. Yeah, so the campaign is for Channel 4's HQ to move entirely to Leeds, which I think is a pretty good idea. Because you don't work there. 
<laughs> I mean, it's very clear from everyone who works there they don't want to go there, isn't it? All media should be made from Yorkshire as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Here's a story that I think did resonate with a lot of our listeners who are graduates or who are undergraduates at the moment and preparing for a career, hopefully, in the media, which is this, which is the story that the tab ran about graduates on the mails program. James, tell us about this. The Daily Mail has a graduate program that you do actually learn to be a journalist doing it, but there's been a lot of people saying this isn't proper journalism. So there are some questions around essentially the Mail's grad scheme in terms of if you end up on the Daily Mail, you get a very intensive, very difficult course that actually still teaches you how to do original and good reporting. Which means calling people up, checking your sources, actually talking to people. Being stuck outside a house in the rain at 5am to try and doorstop someone, all of that still happens. If you end up on the Mail online, you end up in what Nick Davies would call journalism. You get a target of eight stories a day. You are rewriting, you are picture captioning. You are working usually from 5pm to 2am, Friday to Tuesday, which is an awful shift pattern to be on for any length of time. And a lot of them sort of drop out early and then get charged 1500 quid for their training. And the issue is this isn't training you to do anything other than regurgitate other content for junk food clicks. But, and but so that, that is, is journalism these days, isn't it, Naz? I mean, it is training you to write a mail online story. They're one of the most successful websites in the world. That is a career for someone. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to sound sceptical about the media, but that is a big chunk of how things are being done. Like, I can see why you'd be annoyed if you're on that scheme, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily you're not learning something useful. I hate to say that given that there are so many jobs that are literally there. Mm. What would your advice be, actually, for people who are soon to be media graduates listening to this about how to crack into the industry? You know, if it isn't to get a placement at Associated, which is one of the major newspaper groups in this country. I feel very mixed because in some ways I tell someone don't go into media right now unless you have some sort of cushion. And I hate that I'd say that, but that's just like a reality. On the other hand, I would say maybe if you want to start at sort of a smaller company run by younger people, because I feel like there'll be more opportunity to do sort of hands-on things rather than like this kind of scheme. I think it's also a bit cynical, like, you know, oh, let's get these young people to do sort of online things that don't add much, but they're young, they can do it quickly, you know. I mean, at BuzzFeed, James, when they're looking for new employees, graduate employees, are they looking for trained journalists? I'm sure they are a bit, but are they just as much looking for people who have experience at more agile young companies? It really does depend. I mean, BuzzFeed runs a fellowship scheme, which is really targeted at people without any of that traditional stuff. You come in for three months, it's paid. It's more like a long internship, but people are often hired directly off that, which is why we have a newsroom that I think is about 24% BME, 15% LGB. It's young. It's a bit more working class than a lot of places. And people actually learn to do the job because no one in BuzzFeed does eight stories every day. Eight stories a day isn't a career, it's a job. It only teaches you how to do that kind of stuff. And so really, if you want to come in and have a career, you're much better starting somewhere smaller and often less glamorous, you know, business to business, sort of trade publications, some, sometimes even the good locals. You will learn a lot more and you might not have that kind of cool thing as you start out of a national, but you will at least have the skills to build a career. So I'm 32. I think that applies to my generation as well. Starting small and local, like you actually get to like do things that are going to be that are going to teach you a lot more and be useful. So, but to be fair to the Daily Mail, which isn't something I say often, 
it is a, a, an actual graduate scheme where people get paid. You know, yes, they have to pay back if they quit, but they are being trained in something. And there are you know, the very ambitious, very competent people will surely be able to sidestep into a genuine journalism role or working on video. I mean, there are huge opportunities there that are being offered to graduates. I would definitely differentiate the people who end up on those online roles versus the others. And there are people who have been on these schemes who will very vigorously defend it. They'll say it's tough, but it's doing your time. It's sort of the new version of sitting in council meetings. And so it's definitely defensible. But I wonder, should that just be a particular sort of skill trained job rather than a traineeship? Is it really the most educational thing to write eight stories a day for nine months. I'm not totally sold. Okay, let's talk about The Guardian, ex-employee of Mr Ball as well, and their latest incentive, which is VR. Now, they've been doing this for a year, haven't they? Francesca Panetta, who used to make podcasts with The Guardian, possibly still does, now heads up their VR department making new VR content. My issue with this is because they've gone big on this now, haven't they? They've given everyone a headset if they want one, and they've said, look at all this cool content we've made. My issue with this is there is a lot of talk about it in the media industry. We've done a very interesting special on it right here on the Media Podcast. Look through our archive if you want to know all about 360 video and how that's different to VR. But in the wild, meeting the general public, talking to my family, no one gives a shit. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. No, I think VR is one of these things that only sort of tech people and media people care about. It kind of makes sense because I, I think it's a really sort of dry approach to storytelling. Why? So, like, you know, you read an in-depth 20,000 20, word piece or you see a really good documentary, you connect to it because there's that sense of emotion, there's that sense of someone guiding you in, there's the sense of, like, the reporter being the person who, like, lets you into another world. And you don't get that with VR. You just put on a headset and there's just a lot going on visually, but that's it. You don't actually get a sense for the stories so i think it's something that's more interesting for like tech people and media people who like you know are thinking content wise rather than emotion wise i suppose the idea is eventually the mechanic of delivery stops being the story you know a bit like podcasting i guess you know in 10 years time people just oh yes a vr thing it won't be gamifying the story it'll just the story will be on vr because it should be I mean, I think media has got in the habit of pushing formats onto the audience that we hope will work. But I think The Guardian are being pretty savvy to push VR. It's always VR that you're talking about with The Guardian, voluntary redundancy or virtual reality. <laughs> and actually, their, their VR team is very good. They've made some very good stuff. And there's funding available. There's places sort of giving them grants to explore it. It's ah, essentially a good way. Ah, have of you just funding. put your finger on something? <laughs> Look, but isn't that the Emperor's New Clothes thing? Yeah, there's funding. There's advertisers. It's a hot word. It's a key word. It's a buzzword. But is it bullshit? Why not? If there's funding available, if they can get some stories told, if they can pay five or six skilled staff to learn some new skills, they've used it to tell stories about solitary confinement, that kind of stuff. If that's where there's some money and they're trying to test it with an audience, I'd imagine again with some funding, it's good for places to experiment and it's good for The Guardian to look at any sensible revenue source it can get. And so, yeah, I'm not a big VR fan personally. I'm not sure it's going to be the future of journalism. But if places are wanting to test that and if they can make a bit of money doing it, good on them for trying it out. Well, in stunning analogue flat reality, there is just time for our media quiz. This week, it's entitled Axed or Back. I'll share three classic media brands, and you have to tell me if they're making a return or if they're being put out of their misery. All you need to do is say Axed or Back. It's the best of three. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer, so as you will say... You what? <laughs> and James, you will say... James. The winner gets an executive credit when the format transfers to television. 
Here is question number one. Is it axed or is it back? Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Crime Watch. James. James. Axed after 33 years. Correct. But the Crime Watch Roadshow continues in daytime. What's the Crime Watch Roadshow? Isn't it the worst name for a TV yeah. show ever? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like Antiques Roadshow, but you get mugged on the way out. <laughs> Will you miss Crime Watch, Naz? No. Never seen it? No, I have, but it's kind of not relevant. Trying to find crime, crime doesn't happen anymore. It's all online. <laughs> trying, trying to find criminals is. But I mean, the <laughs> format isn't. That's what I meant. <laughs> but why? Why isn't it relevant? Because this kind of, this format of a show that everyone watches at the same time and you call in, mm. like, we just don't consume media that way anymore. Like, you know, if a crime happens, you just put it up online and get people to... Yes. That is essentially the argument. Although the yeah. thing I will miss, James, is the um, the gallery of uh, criminals that they're trying to find at the moment online. I've been in many an office where we've played Guess the Crime. I will miss the Don't Have Nightmares. Yes, yes. that too. Yes. Okay, here's format number two. You've got to tell me if it's axed or if it's back. Buzz in with your name. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. James. James. It's back. It is. The cast are reassembling for a sixth series for BBC Radio based on the book written with permission from Douglas Adams's estate uh, for a bonus point what anniversary are they celebrating this year the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy team what anniversary are they celebrating this year i'm looking at 40 years very good naz james has completely <laughs> he's trumped you on this i'm that sorry such a guess uh, yes it is the 40th year since the radio series aired and here's question number three james has already won but naz i'm rooting for you is it axed or back the thick of its malcolm tucker Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Axed? No, you've got to say your name first. Naz. Naz. It's axed. No. <laughs> Malcolm Tucker is back. Armando Iannucci has written a piece for The Big Issue this week where Tucker is interviewed about Brexit by Alan Partridge. Armando Iannucci's suddenly everywhere, isn't he? It's almost as if he's got a film out. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> funny that, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and resurrected the greatest hits to push the sort of new offbeat one. You know, why not? Yeah, why not? And actually, by the way, if you are a fan of podcasts, uh, his last appearance on Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast was hilarious. Listen to that. But James, you are this week's winner. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. Naz, that was a poor show, but otherwise, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise a good effort for your media podcast debut. Do come back again. That is it for our show for today. My thanks to James and to Naz. You can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website themediapodcast.com and remember you can keep us on air all the year round by taking out a voluntary subscription just a fiver of your hard-earned cash per month can help keep us afloat head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and give generously and if by the way you're interested in sponsoring the show do get in touch as well. It would be nice to be paid for this one day. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.